I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Gail Merkinson, Associate Professor of Music at William & Mary, to talk all about the life and music of William Grant Still. She discusses Still's early life and his musical family, how he got his foot in the door arranging popular music of the 1910s and 20s, and she brings to light the different aesthetics found in Still's music, from ultramodern to racial and universal. Thank you so much for joining me, Gail, to talk about the life and music of William Grant Still. Well, thank you very much for having me. If you had to sum up his music in a sentence or two, what would you say? Well, first of all, William Grant Still's music is just simply beautiful. It's lyrical. He could uh, compose melodies for days, and it's also very, very expressive. I like that. It's beautiful. It's expressive. But just thinking about his life, he was born in 1895. He lived through some extraordinary times in our country's history, didn't he? Thinking of Jim Crow, segregation, Great Migration, two world wars, civil rights movement, and more, while at the same time, making a living as a composer, something not even remotely easy today, let alone a hundred years ago in those circumstances. Exactly. I mean, William Grant still lived from 1895 to 1978. And uh, just think about, that's almost a century of American history. He died when he was 83. He He was born around the time of Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court decision that established segregation as the law of the land, basically. He moved to New York And he was there during the Harlem Renaissance. Then he moved out to Los Angeles so that by the 1930s he was established in L.A., even though his music was played around the country and then with um, uh, internationally, actually. He served in World War I in the Navy. He also lived through World War II, the Korean War, the Cold War. And when you think about just the fear that Americans and the world had during this era, and then not just the civil rights of the beginning in the 1950s, but also the 1960s civil rights movement and uh, what, what's called the black power and black art movements. And then, of course, the 1970s, when it seems seems as though uh, many of the advances of the civil rights were, movement were at risk. So William Grant Still, um, his life and also his music and his writings uh, basically provide a window into the, the social history of the United States. So what was his childhood like? Did he come from a musical family? I'm wondering about that environment, what instruments he may have played, or where he even got this interest in music to begin with. Well, um, he was the son of William Grant Still Sr., who was musical. He was a mathematics uh, professor and uh, also was the band director at the local HBCU college in Mississippi there. William Grant Still Sr. played the cornet and traveled from Woodville, Mississippi to to Baton Rouge by train to take lessons for for a while. He, um, his mother, Carrie Fambro Still, was originally from Georgia and um, married William Grant Still. She played the piano. Uh, and you have to keep in mind that during an earlier era, before the proliferations of sound recordings, you know, like they say, people had to make their own fun. And being able to play a musical instrument, and especially if you were female, 
if you're a woman, middle-class woman, being able to play the piano and sing was was a hallmark of, of class, of your education, of your refinement, and of you being a cultured individual for middle-class and especially for middle-class blacks of the era. He did grow up in, in a uh, home. I will say his father died when he was very young, within months of his birth. And his mother moved from Woodville, Mississippi to Little Rock, Arkansas, where she taught in the public schools for a number of years. And then she also was very much involved in uh, a local Little Rock's uh, black women's club and arts club, and also provided um, taught during the summers to rural black communities. So for young William Grant Still, how did his music education start? What was the impetus for that? Well, William Grant Still started playing the violin when he was a young child in Little Rock, Arkansas. His mother moved to be around her sisters and her mother, who by that time had migrated from the Georgia area to Little Rock, which was a um, pretty progressive community around the, uh, in the at the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century for African-Americans before the color line hardened. She remarried. She married a United States postal clerk, Charles B. Shepherdson, And he also, even though he was not a musician himself, he was a lover of opera. So still learned how to play the violin. He was given violin lessons. He listened to his mother play uh, piano classics and light classics and and the popular parlor music, basically, of the day. Of course, he would have heard church music in, in at church. And his grandmother, she introduced him to the spirituals by singing spirituals and other songs in the home. And his stepfather's record collection of opera provided the basics of William Grant Still's very early childhood music ed- education, both, both formally and, uh, and informally, in terms of, of not um, being formal lessons. So at this time, he's learning music, I mean, getting um, I mean, I mean, an incredible impression of music from his family, also his grandmother, you mentioned singing spirituals, a woman who was formerly enslaved. But at this time, for young William Grant still, composing hasn't entered the picture yet, has it? Well, he is interested in music, and he's trying to compose his own tunes. Um, um, but his mother did not want... First, there were very few opportunities, say, for example, at, as a young child or teen, to study uh, composition, just in general, not just uh, William Grant Still. Uh, his mother sent him to Wilberforce College, now university, and she wanted him to be a doctor and, and to take all of the pre-med courses. And so, of course, he duly did that in order to please his mother. But he, while he was there, he um, taught himself several instruments. He he directed the, the school band, and he attempted his own uh, – he, he set about providing with his uh, – providing for himself as an autodidact his own course of study in music when he was in college. And uh, he would go to local nearby cities um, in order to hear opera and other music performances. See, Wilberforce did not have a band program or formal music program. So William Grant Still um, was really very active on campus in terms of helping to found, in a sense, the Wilberforce College music program at the beginning of the 20th century. 
After Still had attended and studied at college, I read that he started working in commercial music, arranging and orchestrating popular music of the 1910s and 1920s. What motivated his decision to go into commercial music right away instead of classical or often, or as he often referred to it, art music? Well, very simple, just the life. <laughs> he left college a few months shy of graduation, and then within a year, he became a young father and a young husband. And so he he found work playing in various bands at resorts throughout Ohio. His wife, for the birth of the child's um, first months of life, had gone to her parents' home in Danville, Kentucky. William Grant Still's father had preceded um, W.C. Handy as band director at Alabama A&M, where William Grant Still Sr. had taught. And so W.C. Handy needed someone to arrange and to play in his band. And so through that connection, William Grant Still came to work with W.C. Handy in Memphis in the summer of 1916. And uh, so those two things, after he left college, in order to support himself and his family, he started playing um, freelance with bands uh, that played in the local area in Ohio. And then he found a better long-term job with the prospects of long-term in the summer of 1916 with W.C. Handy in Memphis. And that was an, another important part of William Grant Still's music education, his experience there in Memphis. Do we know of any of the songs he might have been working on at the time? Yes, I actually there are. William Christopher Handy, W.C. Handy, had a publishing concern that he had formed with a, um, Harry Pace, and it was called Pace and Handy Music. And so while W.C. Handy had a, had a band or ran several bands out of Memphis that played in and around Memphis and toured as far east into Ohio and the western part of Pennsylvania... And in, and also he fielded bands to play into part of the Mississippi Delta. Um, he also had a music publishing concern where he published his blue, his own blues compositions, such as St. Louis Blues, uh, Gulf Coast Blues. And he also pu- uh, published um, several arrangements, many of uh, that William Grant Still did. For example, William Grant Still did a, an arrangement of Gulf Coast Blues. And uh, W.C. Handy recorded Still's arrangement. And also keep in mind that, that, uh, for example, Bessie Smith recorded a version of the Gulf Coast Blues. But William Grant Still had two songs that were published by Pace and Handy very early in his career, during these very, very early pop and music careers. One was called Memphis Man, and the other one was called No Matter What You Do. And I think him having this job, although it sounded like he needed to have this job quickly, he had a a family to support, trying to make a living. It's also a good kind of sneaky job for a composer providing so much education. As you said, he was kind of like furthering his education. A big part of a composer's job is orchestration, figuring out which instruments to play together, how they sound, how they interact, and all those um, effects, if you will, that you can exploit to your own advantage in other works. So at this time, he's arranging and doing all this stuff with some of his own music, but a lot of other people's music. And he's able to almost experiment, it sounds like, with, well, what does it sound like when I put these things together or adjust the harmony this way? Like a lot of, like a one huge homework assignment that benefited him uh, later on with his compositions. 
Exactly. William Grant still had one of the best setups possible when you think about it. I mean, almost as soon as he composed something, he knew that very soon he could hear it. He could hear it. Or almost as soon as he arranged something, he could hear it because it was going to be played by either the band that he was in with W.C. Handy or one of the bands that W.C. Handy was sending out in and around the area. So, yes, he could figure out immediately whether or not something worked or, also importantly, whether or not something went over well with the audience. He also studied in Boston as well, right, with George Chadwick? Uh, Yes, but before he studied with Chadwick, he also studied harmony and theory and composition at Oberlin. Okay, yes, that's a conservatory in Ohio. Right, exactly, exactly. We're going to get into his music next, some specific things I've seen that you've written. But just to think for a moment, at this time, he still hasn't had any of his classical music or art music performed at this time. I read that would not come until 1925 when he was 30 years old. And then a few years later in 1931 that Rochester Phil would play his music. And then in 1936, the New York Philharmonic. I mean, that is... He's 30 years old. His classical music is played for the first time. I think it was from the Land of Dreams. And then a decade later, his music is being played by the New York Philharmonic. That is such a trajectory. It's it's almost hard to think about. There are a couple of things to keep in mind as well in terms of, of the trajectory. There was – William Grant still had worked very long and hard in, in several other uh, areas. After he went to Oberlin for a few years and then he moved to New York to rejoin W.C. Handy, he worked in the Handy Concern. He worked for the Pace Recording Company, which was uh, short-lived. But again, he was an arranger and musical director. So again, he's building his skills. He orchestrated for a number of of reviews, like Running Wild, for example, that played in New York at this time. So again, he's learning how to compose, and he's learning how to arrange, and he's also learning how to understand audiences and what the business of being a working and living and gigging musician and composer is about. And uh, he was quite fortuitous to become one of Paul Whiteman's regular arrangers in the late 1920s. And then he also went on to uh, work for Willard Robison and his um, radio show. So even though his classical music compositions weren't performed until uh, the mid to late 1920s, 1924, 1925, this is the same time that William Grant Still's music is being heard all around the country on the radio as it's being performed, his arrangements and sometimes original compositions by band leaders such as Paul Whiteman or Willard Robinson in the 1920s and the early, early 1930s. Hearing you explain that and thinking just for a moment of his life and this idea of of, of dual identities or multiple identities that African Americans have had to um, to deal with, I guess there were probably people in these audiences with the major orchestras who were not happy with his music being played, who had just maybe an hour earlier who heard his music and enjoyed it on the radio. Quite possibly. I mean, that that's kind of a speculation. But when you think about um, or um, or had enjoyed it the evening before. But you are correct that whether they heard it over the radio or whether they heard the music at Roseland, if they happened to go out dancing or whether they enjoyed a recording by Paul Whiteman 
or if they enjoyed a recording by Bessie Smith, they, some of these musicians were, had already experienced and enjoyed the music of William Grant Still. And we'll take a closer look at his music in just a moment right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. Let's take a closer look at his music. You've written about a few different categories in which we can place Still's music. Ultramodern, racial, and universal. Starting with ultramodern, when was Still writing in this ultramodern style, and what does that mean exactly? Okay. First, let's go with the term ultramodern. If we go back to the late 1890s into the first couple of decades of the 1920s, the term ultramodern, excuse me, of the 1900s, the term ultramodern was a term that American composers and critics and American academics used to refer to avant-garde or atonal music of the era. And typically composers like Edgar Varese or Schoenberg or Stravinsky Atonal music are very, very dissonant music that that where composers were working outside the bounds of conventional harmony, where composers were seeking to escape or redefine music and uh, really, really break from 19th century romanticism. And then there was modern music, which retained more accessible elements when it came to melody and harmony. For example, if you think about Debussy. So um, Debussy, for example, representing for the American classical music world around the turn of the 20th century and early 20th century, what modernism was um, versus ultramodernism, that very, very avant-garde, harsh and dissonant music of composers like Schoenberg or Stravinsky or Edgar Varese. So with respect to these three periods, When he was working with W.C. Handy, William Grant still um, met and began studying with the French composer who immigrated to the United States, Edgar Varese. Um, Varese had met an African-American colonel, Colonel Charles Young, the first West Point graduate who had risen through the ranks of the army despite all kinds of discrimination. And he was very much impressed by Colonel Young that he wanted to train to give composition lessons to an African-American composer. So he contacted W.C. Handy's office in in New York, the Handy Brothers uh, Publishing Company. And that is how William Grant Still came to meet and study with Edgar Varese. And he composed works in which he tried to combine this dissonant atonal music with African-American music, and especially the blues. And it was when he was working with W.C. Handy and living in Memphis that still really first began a study of the blues. So what he found was that didn't work to his satisfaction because the African-American character, the African-American style, the African-American music, got lost. It got lost when he tried to combine dissonant atonal harmonies with blues melody or or blues rhythms or with with the 12-bar blues. Would his piece Darker America fit within this ultra-modern style? 
Exactly. That's a classic example of him trying to combine the spirituals and blues-like melody with this dissonant, atonal harmony. And when we listen to this music today, does it land a little bit different than it did back then? Because I've listened to Darker America, and it's a great piece. And I've read some things where he said, where he didn't like, what, like you said, things getting lost in there. For me, when I hear it, it seems quite um, straightforward and laid out for the listener. Is that because we're in 2021, and that was something that just wasn't palatable, I guess, in the 1900s? Yes. Um, we, we're in 2021, and we have heard all kinds of music in the history of classical music. And probably at this point in our lives, even just watching TV, a lot of the music that we listen to, and especially since Halloween has passed, you know, scary music. Um, uses all of these kinds of sounds that in the 19-teens and the 1920s, audiences were just would have booed or walked out of or rioted when you think about it. So how long did this ultra-modern style last for um, still? What years around was this happening? He soon parted with Verez, so I would say until we get to about the early 1930s. And the Afro-American Symphony is really um, a, a watershed for Still. There are several other works, but in terms of after he has left Verez and really has found his own voice, roughly 1930 is when we, we find that Still has clearly left behind the ultra-modern style and is clearly in what he himself called his racial style, in which he is really seeking to use African-American musical idioms. So he's using the idioms in source material, but not within this atonal framework of before. Now it is the Afro-American symphony that we know, that kind of style, more, I guess, harmony of composers in the past. Yeah, exactly. But or not just so much um, Western classical music composers in the past. When you think about how Still is using the sound, the harmonies of the 1920s jazz band. And also when you think that about how Still is using the music of the church, of, of, of black hymnody, of the spirituals. Because that was very, very important. Because we have to remember, this still was working in the context of the Harlem Renaissance. You know, he was there. He had played in the pit of all of these musicals or arranged for the musicals of the Harlem Renaissance. He had worked with a number of musicians such as Clarence Williams um, that we know today for, who were prominent in in blues and the popular music industry of the Holland Renaissance. But most importantly, he wrote music that could appeal to African Americans as well as all Americans, but he especially wanted, like the Harlem Renaissance aesthetic, was to show the beauty of African American musical traditions. You said the influence of harmonies in jazz band, blues, and I believe also going back to even just those spirituals that he heard his grandmother sing. These are all the basis of of his music. Were there other American composers at this time using this, um, as he called it, vernacular or music indigenous to um, the country in their music? Or was this something that still was doing more on his own compared to others at the time? 
Um, there were quite a number of other white American composers who were using jazz and blues in their works. Uh, one of the most famous examples is George Gershwin. Gershwin, having come originally from musical theater, um, and then when he's commissioned by Paul Whiteman to compose Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin draws uh, on, on jazz. From that opening clarinet solo through the rhythms the, and the harmony that we hear. Though not the actual musical forms that one would find coming out of black musical traditions. Uh, Aaron Copeland himself and music for the theater and some other smaller works, he drew on jazz rhythms specifically. For him, and for a lot of white American composers, the primary resource, and European composers as well, the primary resource that they found in, in jazz was rhythm. But for William Grant Still, having played jazz and having played the blues that he had learned from W.C. Handy and the blues that he heard when he was in Memphis and was going in and around the Mississippi Delta, he understood that blues and jazz were more than just rhythms. Um, he understood that so much of African-American instrumental music comes from African-American vocal music traditions. And he also understood that there were some specific musical forms, if you will. The 12-bar blues, for example. Musical phrase structures, such as the call and response. And the kinds of, of, of phrase structures that come out of the spirituals and African-American hymnody traditions. And all of these things William Grant still brought into his music. Going from his ultra-modern style to this racial style, the changes that you've talked about with um, harmony and structure and Afro-American symphony being an example of his um, racial style period. Did this affect what he was writing or was it just the material and things within the work? I'm wondering, was it he was writing lots of orchestral music and then when he went to another time period like the racial, he, it was some symphony, but then mostly... I don't know, chamber music or art song, did any of that factor in or was it just he was writing for a variety of different ensembles, if you will, but changing how he was writing for them? Um, well, not exactly. First, all throughout his life, William Grant still remained as uh, primarily an orchestral composer. I mean, he wrote several symphonies. Um, one of the things about his racial style is that his music uh, was, whether it was programmatic, um, such as Darker America, for example, or, or or the trilogy in general, Darker America, the Afro-American Symphony, Africa, which is a work that he used to uh, as part of his trilogy, and then Song of a New Race, they specifically were referred to in title and also in the program or quasi-program. Uh, um, African-American history or African-American culture. Darker America, as, as still wrote in his notes, referred to um, African-Americans before emancipation. And then in Africa, still want, he, he created this world of his imagined Africa, of course, being the source of and, and the origins of African-American people and African-American culture. And then Song of a New Race, representing the modern African-American. So when we begin to think about Still's universal music, he's less composing music that is specifically referring to African-American history or on African-American themes, but musically, musically, when we listen to the sound of the music, 
it still shares a lot stylistically and musically with music that is specifically from his racial period. Even though he might not be specifically drawing on strictly a blues melody or composing in a blues style, there's still so many elements of the blues that are fused and in, that infuses much of his music. Still is a lyrical composer, and that's very, very important when we think about his early experience and uh, what was a very important musical tradition to which he was exposed as a child, African-American vocal music in the form of the spirituals. So there are so many consistencies um, and connections between his racial style and his universal style. And about what time or year did this universal style start for him? We hear it in different times, but it's after he's moved to the, to Los Angeles and he's settled into Los Angeles. And it's by the time we get to about the mid-1930s that still af after his um, second symphony, by his third symphony, still now has embraced his universal style. Can you tell me a little bit about his second marriage to Verna Arvey in 1939? She was also deep in the music world as well, I understand. And she also helped him out with composing and, and librettos for operas and stuff like that. Right. Well, they first met in the early 1930s. Verna Arvey, she was from L.A., and she began her professional life as a pianist. And she had written to William Grant Still because she wanted to perform his music, and she, they eventually met, Still had uh, moved out to L.A., and um, she realized that Still was so disciplined and focused as a composer that he was not paying attention to, to all of his correspondence. So at first she began helping him kind of as his secretary attend to, to that side of the business of being a composer, if you will, so that he could concentrate on creating music. And eventually they fell in love and uh, ended up getting married. Now, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that uh, she was white. Her family uh, was of Russian-Jewish origins, living in L.A., and still was an African-American. And when you think about the context of the late 30s until we get to the Supreme Court decision, um, the Lovings, in the majority of the United States, interracial marriages were illegal. And so still an RV had to go to Mexico in order to marry legally. That's quite extraordinary. One, they're, they're made for each other as musicians. Also understand she was very beneficial in that she was a concert pianist. He wasn't. And so she was able to play back for him some of his compositions, piano or otherwise, to, I mean, basically get immediate feedback. But also just that extraordinary thing of being in your own country and not being able to marry this person, going to a different country and coming back, but still at the same time having that belief in all of his ideals for this own country. Right, right. There was so much to their partnership, to their marriage and to their family. I remember when I was doing some research in the Still Collection, reading about how the family wanted to travel out back east and to the Washington, D.C. area, uh, if I'm recalling correctly. But I remember reading a letter where um, Werner Arvey is writing in advance to someone and trying to make travel arrangements and is asking about once when once they get to wherever it is that they're going, where they will be able to stay. And one of the things that she says is, we are a colored family. If you think about how hard it was when the family traveled, still 
Werner Arvey and their two children, Judith Still and their son, how hard it was for them just simply to not just find accommodation, but when you step back and think about it, for that family to, to be safe, to stay safe on the road, or when they stopped to eat somewhere, or when they needed to stop overnight to rest so they could continue on their journey. That especially affected me in reading that, and when you really think about what still surmounted and how positive he remained throughout his life in terms of the work that he did, and also William Grant still as a family man. I want to try to help paint a picture here for for listeners and what it means to be a composer and the importance of being able to have your your music played, not even just a performance, but just to have it played so you can hear what it sounds like or, or, or test or do different things. In 1947, his opera, Troubled Island, gets played, and uh, William Grant still mentions in interviews of waiting basically decades for the opportunity to have an opera played. He he said if he could have had an opera played earlier, he could have learned from mistakes, errors, could have tested theories. Um, That's what he said. That's a huge thing. If someone gets these experiences early on, they, they reach huge moments of growth as artists and as composers, as they learn from these huge experiences, because an opera is a huge thing to put together. I'm wondering, I guess in that kind of context, what long-term effects, generational even, are the product of these exclusionary or discriminatory practices? What do they create much more than just, oh, someone didn't get their opera played? Well, uh, William Grant still had attempted an opera collaboration with County Cullen in the 1920s, and that didn't work. And he actually did compose a a full-length opera, fully scored for orchestra, Blue Steel, 1934. But it wasn't until Troubled Island, as you said, um, that his opera was fully produced by New York City Opera. As a composer of symphonies, of instrumental music, William Grant still had that experience that so many other of his peers did not. He could pretty soon, uh, after he had completed the work here, what it sounded like, whether he was writing for movies or whether he was writing for TV later in his life or for radio or for W.C. Handy. So if he had had more extensive experience, for example, writing for for the opera stage um, between the time he completed Blue Steel, which he withdrew, which he, he was not satisfied with, and the time 10 years later when he first completed Troubled Island, but it wasn't produced until almost another 10 years, there would have been so many opportunities. But Opera is a different ballgame. It's extremely expensive to mount, to produce. And um, when it comes to the opera world at the time, no black composer had broken that barrier yet to have his or her opera performed by a major company. William Grant still already had two full operas under his belt. He was ready the opportunities weren't there for him at that time. And it also makes you wonder what else, what other music have we missed over the decades that have sat in a drawer because it's been decided that's not going to get played. Right. 
and not just with respect to William Grant Still, but so many other black composers of his day. Exactly. Um, there, there has been renewed interest in the works of uh, Henry Lawrence Freeman. I actually saw a production of his opera back around 2015. There, historically, black composers have been, when you really sit down and think about it, going back to Scott Joplin, black composers in the United States have been composing opera for more than 100 years. But we would never know that because they have not been given a chance to have their works brought before an audience and performed. For someone that hasn't listened to Still's music before, what are a few works that you would recommend? Well, of course, there's the Afro-American Symphony. That's um, the, the canonical Still work. Another one of the works that I would recommend, some of his ballets, for, for example, La Guia Bless. These are all recorded, and you can easily find them. There's Africa, which is one of the first works in the trilogy. And you can already see so much of Still's accomplishment and musical personality in that particular work. We're really, really fortunate in that there was a recording of that first performance of Troubled Island. So if you're interested in Still's opera, you can go listen to Troubled Island. And very recently, uh, St. Louis, uh, they performed William Grant Still's um, Highway 1 USA. And there's also a recording of that if you want another example of Still's opera, a commercially available recording of Highway 1 USA being performed by another ensemble. But there's so much of Still's music that's available. And whether you like opera or chamber music or piano music, or a symphony, symphonic music, there is, there's something for everyone in William Grant Still's uh, works. Is there anything else that we should know about Still today that maybe isn't being talked about or not enough? There are several things about William Grant Still. Still was a prolific letter writer, for example, uh, and uh, he also wrote several articles that appeared in publication of his day. Uh, back in the 90s, John Michael Spencer published a William Grant Still reader. So if one wants to know more about William Grant Still and his ideas and how what he believed and what he thought, not just his music, but the role that music could play in the United States, you can find some of his writings and speeches collected in that particular um, anthology. And also um, there are biographies of Still and the William Grant Still Music Company has a few years ago published William Grant Still's autobiography that had remained unpublished for several years. So I would also encourage to read William Grant Still in his own words to really know what he was trying to do and also get a sense of his inner strength as he persevered when I think people, other people would have just simply given up. And we're going to put links to the on the show notes page to um, all these resources you're talking about. What you were just kind of finishing there with is something that I found in his writing, just to encourage people to read, how positive he is in, in his beliefs and his convictions in, in music and in the United States, in democracy, and just a great person who wrote fantastic music that is thankfully being played more and more today. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Gail. Thank you so much for talking with me, all about the life and music of Still. Well, thank you so much. I enjoy talking about William Grant Still. 
And thank you for listening to Classical Breakdown. Our podcast review this week is short and sweet. Ugerb gave us five stars in Apple Podcasts and said, Marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. I really like it. Well, thank you so much, Ugerb, for the five stars. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave a review in your podcast app. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send those to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. Thank you.